Good morning. I want to thank your pastor for inviting me to come before you yet again. This is my second time in this pulpit, Justin. I'm grateful to be here and to, to share a word with you. And I brought with me today Richard Johnson, my great-great-grandfather. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be worthy to all who hear and challenging for us to absorb. Blessed be Ashe and Amen. I remember the first time Richard Johnson, my great-grandfather, told me a story. It was 1968, I was 10 years old, and the resistance had begun for me. My people were rising up and fighting back against years of indignation, frustration, and limitations. People were mad that a king had been killed in Memphis, that a man named X had been assassinated in a ballroom. I had just had lunch, a grilled cheese sandwich, my favorite, and that big old black and white TV, console model TV, you remember some of you, was on, black and white. There were words coming out, but no one in the living room was listening. I was sitting on the hassock before my great-grandfather, looking up at him with those giant Coke bottle glasses, wondering where his eyes were, wearing his signature shirt and tie, no matter what the humidity or the temperature. On that hot day in June, the air was filled with gray smoke fuming up, consuming North Philadelphia, and the National Guard was marching up and down the street. On that hot day in June, my great-grandfather told me this was the continuation of a story that had started with the Emancipation Proclamation. I couldn't say those words very clearly, but he says when that was signed, this all started. He had been born just a few years after the signing of the Emancipation. He was well over 100. No one knew how old he really was. So he said to me, he never called me by name, he just called me because he had so many great-grandchildren. He says, little girl, I was just a little girl. Little girl, the, the words on that paper mattered a lot to us. And you have to remember, little girl, they were just words. It's up to you 
and all these other colored people out here to make those words matter. And then he proceeded to tell me parts of the story of his life for the first time on that day. He talked about picking cotton and how the plantation he lived on, he would have to pee on it to make it weigh more so when they got to the overseers that it would, would be worth more. <laughs> he told me about falling in love with my great-grandmother. This was the second great-grandmother. Fighting in segregated troops during the most, doing the most dangerous jobs in World War I in Europe, running mines, running messages across mines was the job of the black troops. And they weren't eligible at all for veterans' benefits when they came home. He told me, as he looked out the window at the National Guard walking up and down the street, he told me a story about coming home in his uniform from World War I, proud to have fought for this country in France and in Germany, but hiding in the woods for two days when he got home in Ohio because his best friend had been caught by some Klansmen and lynched before his eyes at a giant picnic of white families. He hid in the woods for two days because it was a big deal to catch a nigger with a uniform and lynch them. It was considered an extra special picnic for that. My great-grandfather told me stories about the black baseball leagues and the day by Grandmother was born. But on that afternoon in 1968, he said a few words that I will never forget. He told me that the Emancipation Proclamation was just a coffee break. He says it was a coffee break for colored people. And, that, and then, surprisingly, he told me to get back outside and Hank, get with my little Black Panther friends, he would call them. <laughs> Anybody that had an afro or a beret, which I had both at 10, were the little Black Panthers. He says, go on back out there, girl, and keep up the story that I started, because this resistance will keep going. His words mattered. Spoken words stir our senses. I'm feeling his presence, smelling that grilled cheese right now. They fuel our dreams and they can call us into action. With great-grandfather's encouragement and the electricity of the movement, I wrote words like revolution, change, power to the people, right on, all across my Vietnam-era army jacket. I became a walking word cloud with fists clenched, saying power to the people. I dreamed of equality infusing the air of Philadelphia, which was segregated. 
Words were the fuel that moved me from the school every day to the protest every night. It moved me from the Santana concert to the courthouse. Words. Words were the button masthead on my chest from every movement you can possibly think of. We Unitarian Universalists love words. Amen? Amen? Amen. We are a wordy people. (laughs) Why use two words when you can use 12? I don't know about you, but I have been at church board meetings where members spent hours and hours parsing words of ordinary engagement, ordinary everyday engagement until the words were no longer recognizable. Amen? You've been there too. We Unitarian Universalists love words. We are a wordy people, but with good reason. But with good reason. Throughout our history, we have used words to challenge the status quo. We are Unitarians because we challenge the word Trinity. We are universalists because we said all instead of few shall receive salvation. We Unitarian Universalists love words. We are a wordy, wordy people. In our hymnals, we have words that soothe us, words that activate us, and words of reverence for life and our interconnectedness. Beautiful, gorgeous, lovely words. We open our services with words that inspire us to be the selves we dream of, be the selves we were meant to be. Words that prompt us to stand up and speak out. We sing hymns with words of hope joy, and peace. We say these words religiously once a week in community with smiles and nods that recognize each other's inherent worth and dignity. We are prolific writers with many of our ministers and lay leaders publishing books and blogs and posts on every issue imaginable. You cannot read the Huffington Post or Salon.com or the New York Times without reading the thoughtful words of a Unitarian Universalist. We Unitarian Universalists love words. We are a wordy people. Now, if you ever need confirmation of this wordiness, you should look at the debate that took place at General Assembly last week. The debate about whether to support a statement of witness 
for Black Lives Matter and the abolition of prisons. There was in that debate resistance to the word abolition and a push to the word reform. These words mattered in lengthy, intense, and lively debates. Now, as I talked to my partner, Ashley Horan, who also is a UU minister and who was in Portland and I was not, I said, this debate sounds vaguely familiar to me. Oh, yes, during slavery, many people said no to abolition and yes to reform. Oh, yes, I remember hearing this during the suffragette movement when many were saying no to a woman's voice, vote, and yes to reform. And yet again, my memory was jogged. And I remember during the civil rights movement that many were saying no, no, no. Let's do it gradually. <laughs> Gradualism, yes to gradualism and no to straight up change. Words matter, people. On this 4th of July weekend, we are reminded of the significant debate about words that mattered during the founding of this nation. Most colonists, being a straight up Yankee from Philadelphia and Boston, I can't help but go back there on this day. Most colonists felt that their lives mattered. So they sought not reform, but revolution. Revolution. While many colonists were loyalists and they remained in the British camp. We too have many UU colonial loyalists in our ranks. Yet we as a people must remain in covenant with each other as we do this sacred work of debating and wrangling with words. We must continue to respect and love one another while we remain in relationship with our words and our worldviews. This is not easy to do. It sucks. It's very difficult work but it is necessary if we are to put into actions the words we say this morning in our hymns, in our readings, in our songs. But friends, we have a challenge that we have to talk about. I remember last year, was that in Louisville? Where were we last year? Arizona, no, that was two years ago. Louisville, I think it was Louisville. Well, wherever we were. I remember at that GA being in an elevator with a group of women with bright, bright, bright yellow t-shirts <laughs> with words on them that said, standing on the side of love. <laughs> 
I got on that elevator, but I did not have a GA badge. I had on a t-shirt and a cap and some shorts, and I was very sweaty. I had attempted to work out. <laughs> but it caused some of the women in that elevator to give me that little smile I get that, I don't know what that's about, but I get it from white people all the time. Like, <laughs> it's very, very amusing. Um, I got that from a couple, and then another one like grabbed her purse, like really tight. So I got off the elevator thinking about that, those bright, bright, bright yellow shirts for all the world to see standing on the side of love and this woman smiling and another one clinching. What an image. How do we use our words as fuel when the oxygen, when the oxygen was taken out of that elevator by fear and hatred? How do we regain the meaning of words that have become habitual and vapid? How do we give new power to words that have not seen any real action on the battlefields of justice? Nathaniel Hawthorne said, words so innocent and powerless as they are, as standing in a dictionary. How potent for good and evil they become in the hands of one who knows how to combine them. What might have happened if somebody combined those words on that elevator into something new? Unitarian Universalist words, they can be innocent and neutral, precise, standing for this, describing that, meaning the other. Yet, if we look after and tend to the garden of Unitarian Universalist words, our Unitarian Universalist words, we can build bridges across incomprehension and fear and absolute chaos. Let's not let our words linger in their boxing corners, staring each other down. Humanist, theist, Black Lives Matter, all lives matter. Let's not do that. Because if we do, they're no good anymore. Words deserved our respect. If you get it, if you get the right ones in the right order, you can nudge the world a little. Our question today that I want to leave you with is how do we make our words matter? more. We know words matter. We know we're wordy people, but how do we make them matter more? Sure, 
We say words matter every day in our blog posts about hope and peace and equity and justice and integrity, but we're talking to one another in our little social circle on Facebook. What about making your matters, your words matter at the right time? Making them matter strategically and consistently. Someone else in that elevator with that group of bright yellow shirts could have said, hey, what are you doing grabbing your purse just because she got on the elevator? Somebody could have done that and made their words matter to me and to each other. Those words would have mattered a lot. So I say, please don't tell me about your activities in Black Lives Matter when you talk to me. I don't wanna hear about it. I already know my life matters. This type of random, liberal, self-congratulatory use of words done by many of us is useless. What matters is for you to say that black lives matter when you go up north and sit around the campfire in Brainerd or wherever else in the Iron Range that you go with your relatives. Don't let your inner words stop you from using your words outside your comfort zone. Let your words be brave and introduce your words to your actions. Craft your words to matter. Discern your words to matter. Live your words like they matter. Words matter because black churches are burning. Hit it. Why? Why? Why are you following me? Why my hoodie make me look suspicious? Why does my music make me dangerous? Why are people that are supposed to protect me attacking me? Why are you afraid of me? Why do you think I'm dangerous? Why do I afraid the people who are supposed to protect me? Why can't I make a peace sign without you labeling the gang sign? Why does standing your ground only work when I'm on the ground? Why do you show this photo over this one? Why do you only stop and frisk me? Why do you have low expectations for me? Why can't I run down the street without causing alarm? Why do you think I'm a thug? Why do you assume I'm armed? Why can't I break? Why is my mom scared every time I leave the house? Why are you targeting me? Why am I a target? Why? 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 I know why. And it has to stop. It must stop. Because I have dreams. Because I can change the world. Because I will make a difference. Because I have a family. Because I am strong. Because I am talented. I have a voice. I can find a cure. I have goals. I can lead the country. I am determined. I have a future. Because I'm a scholar. I am powerful. I'm someone's friend. I'm someone's brother. I'm someone's son. Someone loves me. And because my life matters too. My life matters. 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 Our lives matter. And so did theirs. Thank you, great, great.
Father.